0: begin the message tonight. It's important that when we study the Word of God, and especially the way that we do it here, that we look at the full implications of the text that we read. This is why it takes sometimes a long time to get through a passage and why there are multiple part sermons that I do. It's because I think there are things that need to be very clearly understood so that we don't skip over parts of the Word of God and just say, well, it's there, but really not understand all the implications of it. As we talk tonight, as we look into our message this evening, it's not that I'm going to tell you anything that's deep and secret tonight, anything like that at all, but we're, we're going to consider uh, in the subject this evening all the implications of some of these, especially one word that's given to us here in the scriptures, and you'll see that in just a moment. So I just want to make that clear that we, we take... Time and we go slowly in, in these in these studies to make sure that we understand why certain words are put there and why what the implications of those are. If you'd look tonight in Revelation chapter 22, we're going to continue our study this evening in verses 12 through 17, in which we're talking about the final invitation that's given in Scripture. Now, in the previous messages, I've pointed out that the Bible is filled with invitations for people to come to Christ. And that's because it is God's desire that people would be saved. Our God is a compassionate God, and although we have rejected him, most of the world rejects him, and we live in a very godless society today, it's still true that God desires that people would come to him for salvation. And in the past several months, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, especially the latter parts of it here, we have really seen the consequences of rejecting Christ. We have this awful reminder in chapter 20 that judgment is coming, and those who do not believe are going to stand at this great white throne judgment and they're going to give an account of everything that they've done in their lives. All of their sins are going to be brought up, uh, even sins that they didn't know that they committed. Those things will be brought up at the judgment, and all will be taken into account, and those sins merit eternal punishment. Every sin that we commit merits eternal punishment because it's against an eternal God. But we're thankful for this, that we come to the Scriptures and we find that God has provided a way to escape the judgment. And that escape is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as Christ satisfied God for our sins. That's what the atonement is about. Christ satisfied God in that atonement so that eternal punishment could be taken away from us. So as we come to this last chapter in Revelation, we've seen the extreme wickedness of man, how that is revealed, and yet God does not finish his revelation to man. The last words that he gives, he wants us to know that he is anxious to receive lost sinners, and he grants forgiveness for, for anyone that will believe in Christ. Now, if you look at the scriptures this evening, beginning in verse number 12, John writes the words of God, and here we start with Jesus speaking. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to... To the tree of life, and I might say this someone called my attention to this last week. I keep reading that scripture right to eat of the tree of life. Uh, that's o- it's okay, it's not actually in this particular text, but it is implied here that we have right to the tree of life and to enter in through the gates into the city. For without our dogs, and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Now we're working our way down towards the final invitation that we find in verse number 17. And as we do this, we're, we're taking into account all of this preliminary information that's given in these six verses. And I, I want to just give you the headings of what we've already talked about. Just briefly mention those once again. And then we'll continue with this uh, next verse that we want to look at in particular tonight. So we talk, first of all, about the reward of Christ's coming. And there is a reward that's promised to those that believe in Christ The chief reward, of course, is our salvation, that we are delivered from our sins and we are enabled to go to heaven and and there to live with the Lord forever. But there are also other rewards that God gives. He rewards his faithful servants. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that even the smallest thing, he said, even a cup of cold water that's given in the name of a disciple Shall, uh, someone who does it, it says, you will not lose your reward. And then there's also reward to the wicked when Christ comes. And I just mentioned that a moment ago. That's the just deserts of crimes that have been committed against God. Hebrews says that every transgression will receive a just recompense of reward. Secondly, we talked about the reminder of his consuming presence. Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And that is a statement that he is eternal God, and he's the one that all of us must answer to. All things were made by him, all things consist by him. And there's one thing for sure, that when Christ returns, there will be no more atheists. Now, whether or not they come to the knowledge of the truth, that doesn't matter in one sense. They're not going to be atheists anymore because all are going to recognize that God is real. Heaven and earth should pass away. The Bible says that God and his word will remain forever. So there's no mistaking this. When Christ comes back the second time, you're not going to find an atheist anywhere on the planet. Thirdly, we talked about the readiness of his people. And that's the subject as we looked at it last time. And we looked at the textual variation of the reading in the 14th verse, which says, blessed are they that do his commandments. And there are some versions that render that, blessed are they that wash their robes. And I, as we looked at that, I told you I have no problem at all with the King James reading here. uh, Although some believe that it leads to a belief in works salvation. And that, of course, is a false charge because if that's so, then the apostle John has works salvation written all over the first epistle of John. Uh, And then we can look at every text in the Bible that talks about a reward for faithful service as being translated or interpreted as something that teaches works salvation. But we know better than that. Uh, We know that God has not abandoned the commandments. We know that grace does not do away with the necessity of, of keeping God's commandments. We're not under the law. We're under grace. We know that when we're saved but we never are to think that grace has allowed us to escape the consequences of not keeping God's commandments. We still have to keep the demands of God, and we are to live holy and righteous lives. So I have no problem with the King James reading where it says, blessed are they that do his commandments. But if we take that alternate reading that you find in many of the modern versions, there hasn't been anything false that's been injected into the text, because it's true that those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb are ones that enter into heaven. I mean the washing of robes is emblematic of this that that we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by our belief in him. So there's no one that will enter heaven that's not a blood-bought, blood-washed, redeemed child of God. And we haven't abandoned nor will we ever abandon the preaching of the blood of Jesus Christ. Word of God says that it's through Christ's blood that we have forgiveness of our sins, remission of our sins. So the washing of regeneration, that's what gives us the right to enter into heaven and to commune with God. And verse number 14 says, we have right to the tree of life and to enter into the gates of the city. So that catches us up to where we want to go tonight and the text that we're considering this evening. And this evening, we're going to look at verse number 15, which says, for without our dogs and sorcerers." and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. As I told you at the end of this morning's message, that we're going to talk tonight not about those who are going to be in heaven, but more about those who won't be in heaven. So we're going to talk about those that are rejected when Christ comes. Now in the 14th verse... Well, we talked about last week. There we have blood-washed believers. Again, they have the right to to the tree of life and to enter into heaven. And then in verse number 15, we have those that are excluded from entering. This is a, a description of people that will be in hell. And we're not to assume by this text the way that it reads that here we have people that are gathered around the outside of heaven. They're trying to get in. They're outside of the gates, but they're trying to get in. That's not what the text is telling us. These are people that at this point have been cast into the everlasting darkness of an eternal hell. Now, there's this wide gulf that exists between heaven and hell, and the distance between the two places is impossible for anyone to traverse. Now, it might cause us to think a little bit about how that people are kept in hell. Are there angelic guards there, and they have these guards to watch over them? Is hell a penitentiary where uh, there's razor wire and guard towers and searchlights for anyone who's trying to escape? Well, I don't know how God does it, but I can imagine this, that God really doesn't have to concern himself with keeping an an ever-present force of correctional officers and guards there to keep watch over people that are in hell. Now Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, all of the demons have been cast into hell and we might wonder what is it that keeps them there? Well, we remember that God is the one that gives power and God is able to take it away. God is able to strip Satan of all the power that he's had, of all the abilities that the demons have. God is able to take that away And as powerful as Satan is, he holds absolutely no sway at all in hell. He has no authority in hell. And I suppose that's probably one of his worst torments, that for all of man's history, he's been known as the god of this world. He's had all kinds of control. But when he's in hell, he has no more power. He has no power even over the most insignificant, insignificant smallest underling that he had power over before. He simply has no power in hell. So God is able to take all of that away. He strips Satan of all of his ability, and he doesn't worry about man because man has no ability in the spiritual world anyway. So he doesn't worry about him. But this verse is not primarily about Satan, and it's not primarily about evil angels that are cast into hell. This is talking about people, people that have been denied access to the eternal city of God. Now, we notice here the description that's given of them. It says, For without are dogs. Now, if you need a verse in the Bible that tells you there's no dogs in heaven, we could use this one if you wanted to. I'm looking for the verse that says no cats in heaven, but that one is so self-evident that God said, I don't even need to include that one. Well, I'm being facetious because we're not really talking about literal dogs here. Uh, Many people have a very fond affection for their dogs. Some people treat their dogs better than they do the rest of their family. You know, I've never understood things like this, how that people let dogs lick them in the face and they say, oh, well, my little pooch, he's just giving me a kiss. I've seen the other places that dogs lick and I don't want to, I don't want dogs licking me. But people have this affection for dogs and and they have clothes for dogs and they have societies for dogs and hospitals for dogs and there are people you know that will pay big money that when the dog dies they put him in a pet cemetery and and some of them have them stuffed and uh, when Fido leaves this life and goes to the great fire hydrant in the sky they've got something to preserve that memory they've got the dog there well I don't really want to get anybody upset about this, but I I just, you know, that doesn't register with me. Maybe I should be more considerate of how people feel about their pets and about their dogs, but I do have a little bit of a hard time understanding that. But I have a frame of reference for it. I, when I was young, my dad was dead set on not having a dog in the house, but we had this little short-haired cocker spaniel and he would freeze to death outside in the wintertime. So my dad reluctantly allowed the dog to come into the house. He never did like it, but he allowed, that, he allowed us to do that. Well, as, as he and my mom grew older, and we got married and we left home, I guess they were a little bit lonely, so my dad bought two Pomeranians and uh, kept them in the house, and those dogs were treated better than I was ever treated. <laughs> my dad used to talk about my mom... And um, he would say that when she takes a bath, she doesn't wash her legs anymore because that little dog would sit down beside her and lick her legs all, all day long. And reference what I said a moment ago about dogs licking you. But dogs hold a far different place in the affections of people today than they did in Bible times. Dogs didn't fare so well in Bible times. Now, dogs were scavengers, they ran in packs, they were often very dangerous. And even those that were somewhat domesticated, they were animals that roamed the streets of the city and they ate the garbage. In Luke chapter 16, we have the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And you know, Lazarus was a beggar and he sat there at the gate of the rich man. The Bible says the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I doubt that there was an invitation for the dog to do that, but that's a detail that's added into Scripture to show us how deplorable the state of this beggar was. Because dogs were filthy animals. And in that story, Lazarus was a believer. And it just shows you that even somebody of such lowly estate, someone who has absolutely nothing, the worst thing has happened to him, that is still a person that can be saved by God. Now, on the other hand, you have the rich man, and the Bible says that he fared sumptuously every day. And that rich man was not accepted or. Not accepted or accepted on the basis of riches. Lazarus wasn't accepted or not accepted on the basis of being a poor beggar. But the determining criteria is what do they know about Jesus Christ? What do they believe about him? Have their robes been washed in the blood of the lamb? So dogs here in Revelation 22, uh, this doesn't really refer to the animal. And I just gave you all the extra Information here to show you the contrast in our affection for dogs and their rejection of dogs. So, here dogs mean unbelievers, and you could scarcely have described people in a worse way in Bible times than to call them a dog. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 15, and here we'll see that the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, and it's interesting. Uh, as you're turning there to note that the original readers of Revelation were aware of this designation that had been given to them. They were mostly Gentiles, and they were aware that they are called dogs in Scripture. But you look here in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. It says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs." And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Well, I think it's interesting as we look at this that Jesus' ministry was first of all to the Jews. He was the promised Messiah, of course, of the entire world. But when he came in his ministry, his ministry was concentrated only to the Jewish people. And that's according to the Messianic promises that are given in the Old Testament. I mean, here is the one who will be the last one to sit on the throne of David. And so when he was approached by this Canaanite woman, and of course she was a Gentile, he at first refused to answer her he didn't listen to her request she wanted a demon to be cast out of her daughter and we might look at that and we wonder why did Jesus ignore her and without going into the detail let me just comment here that this was another teaching opportunity for him and he intended to show his disciples that he was not only the God of the Jews but he was also the God of the Gentiles and their savior as well So when he was approached by this woman, he took the tack that Jews would normally take. He said, "It's not proper to give what has been promised to the Jews and give that or and to share that with Gentiles. And especially, it was true of this particular type of Gentile. She was a Canaanite woman. This is someone who was marked for destruction by God. Now you remember when Joshua went in to possess Canaan." that he was told that he was to drive all of the Canaanites out. He was to exterminate that entire race of everybody that was living in Canaan. But Joshua didn't follow that order completely. And so the Canaanites, from that, from that time forward, became a thorn in the side of Israel. So in this particular story, Jesus reflects on that, and the disciples did as well. Uh, they wanted to shoo her off and not to have anything to do with her. But Jesus went a little bit deeper into this, and he began to probe her faith, and she admitted how undeserving that she was. She recognized that she was a sinner. She recognized the position that she had in, in God's kingdom. I and mean, I'm talking there, when I'm speaking kingdom, I mean the overall scope of God being the, the owner of the earth, of the universe, not the kingdom of heaven here. But she understood her position. And the fact of this is she had far more insight into what she was than the unbelieving Jews had in, in understanding what they were in the sight of God because they didn't receive Christ. They were the ones that were supposed to recognize who Christ was. So Jesus taught his disciples a lesson here, that it doesn't matter about your race. It doesn't matter about your social standing. You can be the worst dog, and if you will admit it, Admit that you are a sinner and believe in him. Then he will graciously forgive you of your sins. But this term dogs is not only reserved for Gentiles. Paul also used it to describe those that pervert the gospel of Christ. In Philippians 3 verse 2 he said, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now in that scripture he's talking about Jews. And he's speaking about those who tried to bring... Christians back under the rudiments of the law, especially that of circumcision. In our study on Wednesday nights, we're looking at this in the book of Galatians, and that is in large part about these Judaizers that were trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so they denied faith alone as the means of our salvation, of our justification, and they tried to put works or circumcision into that equation. And what Paul does is he calls them dogs. And there's not a worse term that he could have chosen to describe them. Now, sometimes people get upset with me because I say certain things about false teachers. I might call them by their name, whatever it might do. But I have never used as derisive a term as the Apostle Paul did when he referred to these false teachers as being dogs. Again, that is just about the worst thing that you could say about somebody. So we see in Scripture that dogs don't fare well. And and maybe we don't understand that too well because we have this fascination with dogs. I mean, like I said a moment ago, people love their dogs better than they do their own family. But it wasn't that way in the ancient world. This is a scathing, derisive word. So the Judaizers, these are filthy, unclean people. And in fact... This is a word that God uses to describe anyone who tries to pervert the gospel of Christ. They're considered to be the same. They're filthy. They're unclean. The worst part of hell is reserved for them. So I, I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of some of these TV preachers and these cultists when they come and stand before God. I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of the Pope or of the priest, the Roman Catholic priest that have the spiritual welfare of people in their hands because when they cause people to believe a lie, they are dogs of the worst sort. Now, I want you to look back for here a moment into Revelation at chapter 21 in verse number 8. And here the scripture says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, you should see a similarity between that verse and our verse over here in Revelation 22, verse number 15. But there's an exception in Revelation 22:15, and that is the word abominations has been replaced or abominable has been replaced by dogs and I think that there's some significance to that because dogs is a word that is used to refer to the worst sort so these are people that are guilty of the the, the violent sins that are imaginable Let me read to you from Deuteronomy, and we see some of these vile sins. Deuteronomy 23, verse 17, it says, There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. Thou shalt not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord thy God for any vow. For even both these are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, you see where it says the price of a dog This actually refers to male prostitutes. These are sodomites that were a part of cult worship. And I've told you countless times, I don't know how many times I've talked about this, how my eyes were opened when we went to Israel and there in the ruins of these Canaanite cities, you saw these symbols of male prostitution in those ruins. And that was a part of their evil practices in their religion. And we we really can't even imagine the vile perversions that they were involved with. The story that we have of, for instance, of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel also involved this kind of thing. Uh, The prophets of Baal, when they were marching around the altar there and they were crying out for their god, Baal, to send down fire from heaven to consume their sacrifice, what these worshipers of Baal did, these false priests did, they had some... They had these evil, obscene things. Uh, There were sodomites that involved sodomy in their worship. So we have this warning in the New Testament, and it's particularly important for believers that were living in the Roman Empire at that time because there was this immense wickedness that involved these same types of of, uh, uh, acts of sodomy, all of these kinds of things, same cultish practices, same homosexual orgiastic behavior. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after he gives a list of sins and mentions these abominations, he says, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified. So these were people that had come out of that kind of a lifestyle and they're warned not to return to it. So we have this reminder by this use of word dogs that that is a reminder of how God views those types of sins. So dogs don't come off well in Scripture, and neither do those that are identified by the term. So that tells us that, as we look at this today, that there's no excuse or defense for homosexuality or gay marriage. It's extreme wickedness. This is what the Bible says about it. The, the word dogs is, is used to apply to that. And what we need to do is, is to pray for the deliverance of those people because that is one of the worst sins that be, can be committed. Now, having said that, though, as we look at Matthew 15, that story we read just a moment ago, that we see that God is willing to save people that are involved in those types of sins. He, he's willing to bring people out of that. But you, you have those that say, well, homosexuality is not a choice. People are born that way, and they offer that as an excuse for the behavior. But I don't think we even need to argue that point. All of us are born in sin. All people are born in sin. All people are sinners. So it doesn't matter because if you've been born into this world, you're somebody that God can save. God can bring you out of any sin. But people that deny the Bible's teaching about homosexuality are not going to believe the ability of God to deliver those people anyway. And so thus, you find them here in Revelation 22, verse number 15. They are outside the new Jerusalem in the fires of an eternal hell. And don't think I'm just singling out that sin because that's not the end of the verse. It goes on. Without, it says, our sorcerers, their whoremongers, murderers, and idolaters. Now, we covered that list in a little bit of detail when we looked at this similar verse in chapter 21, and I'll just remind you of a little bit of that. Sorcerers has reference to those who use witchcraft and drugs. This is a The same word from which we get pharmaceutical and drugs and witchcraft are part of the trickery of the antichrist that's one of the things that he uses to get people to follow him well the antichrist is in hell at this point and all those who practice those types of things those kinds of vices will be outside of the city of heaven forever then we have whoremongers and that refers to all different types of sexual sins that word actually comes from the same word that we get pornography And then there are murderers. And we ought to pay particular attention to this and not forget the definition that Jesus gives of a murderer. He said those that are angry without a cause are guilty of murder. You see that when we think that we're doing so well and we're really fine, upstanding people, we have no problems at all, we have no sin, well, we see how far short that we fall of God's expectation. Now, the point here in all of this is that none of us can escape what's in the list. It's going to catch us one way or the other. And it's important for us to know that Christ is able to cleanse us from all different types of sin. He's able to cleanse a wicked heart. Idolaters are mentioned. When Paul entered the city of Athens, remember the story there, how there were hundreds of idols that lined the streets, idols to every kind of God imaginable. I mean, they were afraid that they were going to leave their, some God out, and so in many different places throughout the the city, they would have these altars that were to the unknown God. I mean, there were so many they didn't want to leave one out. Well, that was pervasive. That that went on all the time in the Roman Empire and the places where Paul and John preached. But we also looked at a, at another way that people commit idolatry. We looked at that as we studied the last chapter of 1 John, and that is when people construct a Jesus that is not what the Bible says that he is. When people invent a Jesus that answers to to all of their whims, who doesn't condemn anybody for sin, who is not fully God himself, not full deities, not coexistent, not co-eternal, not co- Equal with God the Father, then those people are idolaters. When people refuse to preach the cross, when they refuse to preach about sin and hell, when they refuse to preach about the blood of Christ, when they have a Christless Christianity, then they're guilty of idolatry. Nobody that has a false view of Christ will be able to enter the gates of the eternal city. But as you know, there are many people that say, well, choose your path to God, take the way that you want. All paths are equal paths, and to that we say all other paths are idolatry. They're never going to lead to the eternal city. They never lead to the tree of life. They always lead to destruction. Then there's one other category here, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Deceitfulness is a very common theme in scripture. Very simply, God hates liars. And that stands to reason that you have the lover, the one who is the lover of pure truth, who is nothing but pure truth. He detests anything that even gets close to a lie. And that's a sin that's common even among Christians. And I would dare say that it's a trait that's often found in Baptist pulpits. You know, I, I could talk all day long about prosperity preachers and how they are liars. I can talk about priests and popes of Rome and talk about Roman Catholicism, and I believe all of that is a lie, but I don't have to pick on them. I can come right home to our Baptist churches, and we can find lying in the pulpit of Baptist churches. See, whenever a preacher exaggerates stories for effect, he's a liar. And I've heard preachers Tell stories and illustrations, take them from other preachers and put them into their own sermons as if the very same things happened to them and make people believe that. Well, that's a lie. That's nothing but a lie. And I'm not going to mention any names in particular here, but I know of one preacher that's since died and people are still what I call worshiping at his altar, but he was a bona fide liar. And that might be a moron, but he, he was a liar. Um, maybe he said some good things, but he was, it was not uncommon for him to lie about things. One of the things he lied about, which was, was an obvious lie, he said that he preached 50,000 sermons during his lifetime. Now, I think that he was 74 years old when he died. And, uh, you know, people smart, if you're a little bit smart, do the math, put a pencil to that and see, how does that figure out? Well, that would mean that he preached two sermons a day, 365 days a year, from the time that he popped out of his mother's womb, I mean, he must have been better than John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb when, when uh, his mother Elizabeth heard about Mary that she was pregnant. Well, this guy's better than John the Baptist because the day that he came out, he must have been preaching. He was preaching all of these sermons. Well, you know, th- there's people think, well, that, that's that's you know, telling a lie from the pulpit. They don't see anything wrong with that, and I have serious problems with the ethics of some of these people. I'm not always surprised by it, but I do have problems with it, and that's why I don't hang out among a lot of them. Well, we have a reminder here of what God thinks about any kind of deceitfulness. And I'm not going to say that we can't include ourselves somewhat in this, because... We we're, we're guilty sometimes. Sometimes we're prone to do it. I hope that I don't do it from the pulpit. But every one of us here, we would compound our lies if we said that we're not liars. We've all committed the sin, and we would all have to suffer the consequences of it if it wasn't for what Christ did for us. He took the pain. I mean, he he took the punishment for that sin as well. But it's put here, I think, in these last verses of. Revelation, so we can remember this and remember what God thinks about it. It made the list in these final verses that we have in Revelation. These are the last words that God speaks to man, the last revelation that's given, and he talks here about deceitfulness. He speaks about liars, and we need to get a grip on that, and we need to remember what it says. Well, we didn't get very far tonight. Uh, we don't didn't actually get down to that verse that states the final invitation. We're still a little ways away from that, but we're working our way there. All of these things that we're talking about are very important, because it's not only important to learn what we have been saved unto, and that is the glories of heaven, but it's also important to remember what we have been saved from. And you'll appreciate what God has done for you ever so much when you realize what you have been saved from, And you're willing to admit that. So there are people that are forever rejected from entering the new Jerusalem. And it's because they don't have this essential qualifying factor. It's the one that we studied last week. They have not had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's the thing that gets you into heaven. You must believe in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have your sins purged, by your faith in Jesus Christ, by the washing of his blood, then you are condemned forever to the fires of hell. Now, I hope that I haven't described anybody in this room tonight. I hope that all of you are believers. I hope all of you would say, I'm blessed to have the right to the tree of life and to enter into the gates of this eternal city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again tonight for Jesus Christ, the things that we have just described our what would happen to us if we did not have our faith in you and we know lord that it wasn't anything that we've done it wasn't us that chose you you chose us and you drew us to you and lord you even gave us the faith that we could trust you gave us that ability so we thank you lord that you have saved us from our sins and we pray for anyone here tonight if there is someone here tonight who doesn't know that Uh, they have been pardoned from their sins by their belief in Jesus Christ, that you would make them aware of what Jesus has done on the cross. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for being able to, to teach it and learn more about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.